0: Looking forward to Family Fun Week. On Wednesday we have Family Fun Day, which is going to be an all-day activity. And that's going to be an exciting time as well with uh, different kinds of games and prizes for kids, uh, water slide and things like that. So make it a point to come out this week. Come out between 6 and 8.30 for Family Fun Week. You will enjoy it. Come see what God is doing. Come tonight to decorate. This whole place will be transformed and it's going to be a fun time. So if you're a little busy move things aside and try to get out here for at least an hour or so. You won't regret it. Let's bow our heads together and pray before the Lord as we open His Word this morning. God, as we still our hearts, we just lean upon Your grace right now, God. Lord, you have been just moving in our hearts in different ways over the weeks as we've considered how you've worked in the past, how you're working now, and how you will always do this throughout eternity. Lord, we pray that you would put aside all the distractions, God, and there's plenty here just alone with the heat. We pray you still our hearts, oh God. Again, God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and I pray, God, that you would pierce our hearts to be men and women of faith who believe in our great God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's really quite easy to cheer for an underdog. A lot of us like underdogs. We like the kind of movie that was a low-budget film and kind of raises through the ranks and then it gets these great awards at the end of the year. We root root for those kinds of movies. We like the underdog. Or the story of a young girl who grows up in a rough neighborhood but fights through school and, and works hard and goes to college and has this great career. We like those kinds of stories. Stories of a team that wasn't supposed to make it very far and... Their team, because of persistence and unity, they, they, they beat the better teams. I think of the New York Giants against the undefeated New England Patriots in the Super Bowl just a few years ago. And many of these stories are called David and Goliath kinds of stories. Where someone who is unlikely raises to the top and defeats an odd or a a competition or something that was far greater than what, what they're expected to be able to compete with. And these are David and Goliath kinds of stories. And today we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath. It's arguably one of the most popular stories in all of the Bible. And yet what we see is, as we've seen in past weeks, stories like David and Goliath, Or like we saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the story of Gideon. They become kind of like fairy tales. They're stories that have these these motivational factors in them. But they're just kind of fun stories like Little Red Riding Hood. And today I want us to open up this story of 1 Samuel, chapter 17 of David and Goliath. A story that has far more to it than simply a smaller person beating a giant. And there are questions we need to ask of this story to, to pull out the meat of it, as we looked at before. Questions like, why did David go fight Goliath? I mean, really? Was David some, some daredevil that wanted this, this competition, like climbing Mount Everest? Why, why would Goliath even agree to fight David? How does this story play a role in the book of 1 Samuel? I said this is 1 Samuel chapter 17, which means 16 chapters preceded it. How does this story fit into the bigger picture? What does this story teach us about faith? And more importantly, what does this story teach us about God? See, as we've looked throughout the weeks, we've seen that our God is active now just as He was then. And if we fail to see those stories, to have the same God that we worship today, they become just myths and fun stories that we teach people about, but nothing that's true in our lives. But we want to declare that that's our God. That is our God. And what if we said that He was there, He is, and He will, and that's the case. And that's what we want to see from our God as we open up 1 Samuel chapter 17. Would you turn your Bibles to that chapter, please. And as you turn there, I want to lay out some context for you. The nation of Israel had been ruled by judges, people who would come up and deliver them, but they weren't kings. They weren't royalty. They were just deliverers who were to help God's people follow him. But after a series of judges, there came a man named Samuel, a godly man. But after he grew old, the people of Israel became concerned. Samuel, what happens when you die? Your sons are wicked. Who's going who's to care for us after that? What we need, Samuel, we need a king, just like the other nations have. Yeah, we need a king, a strong person, who can go forward with us in battle. And what the people of Israel did not realize was that their request was a snub to their God. Because over and over he said, I go forth before you in battle. I will protect you. I will be your king. And yet they requested a king. And a king they got. His name was Saul. He was a handsome man. A man who had a head above every other person. A tall man. A man of presence and stature. That they can look to and say, that's our king. He's mighty. He's going to go before us. And and, and Saul had a good start, but it quickly went downhill. Because Saul was a people pleaser. He was afraid of what people thought of him. And on two different occasions, he does something out of ordinary because God commanded him to do another thing. But because he was afraid of the people, he disobeyed God. And the consequence of the first time was that he would lose his kingdom. His children would not inherit the kingdom. And the second consequence was, God told him, Saul... You will no longer be king from now. And God sent forth the prophet and the priest Samuel to go out to the home of a man by the name of Jesse to find Saul's replacement. Jesse was a lowly man in the city of Bethlehem. He had eight sons. And when Samuel showed up to Jesse's house looking for the next king, he quickly went to the oldest. Surely this man must be the next king. And he was a strong-looking young man. But God said, no, that's not the next king. And seven times he did this, when finally Samuel says, where do you have any other children here? And surely Jesse did. He said, but he's my youngest, and he's out taking care of the sheep. Samuel said, bring him here. And as we know, this young man, his name was David. A handsome young man, but a young man nonetheless. And God wastes no time and tells Samuel, that's the one. Samuel anoints him, and that would be the beginning of a long road for David, where he would eventually become king. And this story of first Samuel chapter seventeen takes place right where David was right after David was anointed. He's still young, Saul's still the functioning king. But we're seeing his gradual demise, and perhaps we see its climax with this story of David and Goliath. As we see in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. That's an important detail. The Philistine armies, they were a neighboring nation, a nation that was constantly in Israel's way, a constant enemy always fighting with them, trying to regain land, and trying to extend extend their boundaries. And now the Philistine armies were in Soko, which belonged to Israel. They had tried to take it over. And here we see the nation of Israel saying, we're not going to let that happen. In verse 2, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. So this is the scene. There are two armies. You have the Israelites and the Philistines. And they're trying to do battle over this land in the valley of Illa. It's called the Shfela. This land was a fertile land, a land where you could grow many crops. It was a valuable land. And no doubt the Philistines wanted it, so they were ready to fight for it. And Israel was not going to let it happen. But this little story, this little battle takes a dramatic twist quite quickly. And in verse 4 we see this. There came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. A cubit is 18 inches, which means Goliath was nine feet, plus a span, which was probably about another six inches. This guy was a giant. But it says he was a champion. The details go on that say he had a bronze helmet, He had a a coat that weighed 125 pounds. The shaft of his spear alone was 15 pounds. He had a javelin on his back and a sword at his hip. This man was a warrior. And he had an armor bearer who went before him with a shield. And this giant, this massive dude, this guy was a monster. In verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a man? Am, am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. This is a duel. You bring your best man, I will come forward. We'll have a one on one battle. The winner is able to enslave the other nation. That was the Philistine Goliath's proposal. And Israel has a response, but not the response you would expect from the people of Yahweh, the God who led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. These people, these people, in verse 11, says, When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Which is really surprising here, because of Goliath's insult in verse 10. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Goliath mocked the people of God. He mocked the army, and their response was fear. This dude is rough. We're not going to be able to out outmuscle him. In terms of brute strength, there was no comparison. Goliath was a champion. Nobody in all of Israel can beat him in a cage match. They had no solution. And their only response was fear. Well, then the story kind of slows down for a moment. We see in verse 17, this man David comes back on the scene, a young man from Bethlehem. And we see that he had three three brothers. The name of the first in verse 13 was Eliab. The next was Abinadab and the third Shammah. These brothers were older so they can go out to war. And they were at the battlefield with Saul shaking in their boots. David was a young man, which means he was probably less than 20 years old, because once you're 20, you can go out to war. So David is here and introduced. And he's introduced with this detail in verse 17, that his father Jesse sent him out to go visit his brothers at the battlefield. He gives them some food and says, take this to your brothers, take this to their commander, and come back after you've done so and give me a report. In verse 18 it says, says, see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So David has two responsibilities. Make sure your brothers okay and bring me back something to prove that they're okay. So David does so. In verse 20. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the pr- provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment at the host, as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Verse 21, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, against, uh, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. We see in verse 16 that Goliath had done this for 40 days. 40 days. And David has heard it. He made the 15-mile journey from Bethlehem to the battlefield. And he hears this mockery. We see in verses 24 through 40, several different responses. We've already seen that King Saul trembled. He was shaking in his boots in verse 11. We see in verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So their king was afraid. The army was afraid. How does David respond? Well, it says in verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Well, you learned from a few verses earlier that Saul said, I'm giving them my daughter. The king's daughter will be given to the one who defeats this giant. So get this reward. If you kill Goliath, you get to marry into the royal family. And there's such a hubbub about the royal family that they've uh, visited Hollywood. People are just, you know, crying, weeping because they saw them from Britain. This is, this is real deal here. If you, de- if you defeat Goliath, you can marry into the royal family. So David asked the question, what's at stake here? And the people told him. But David goes on to make this statement. To show that he was not so much concerned about the reward, but about what was happening. He says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Who does he think he is? He calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. This isn't a racial slur. The covenant of circumcision was something that God, that Yahweh had given to Israel through Abraham. And those who had not been circumcised were not those who were in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And David knew this man didn't fear his God. This man was an idolater. And he says, who does he think he is to mock my God? He says the armies of the living God. Elohim Hayim. The living God. Not a dead statue. Not a stone or an object, but a God who is active. How can He mock them? How can He defy our God? Now it's really interesting that He uses the word defy the armies of the living God. Because we see in verse 10... The Goliath says, "I defy the armies, the rank." We see uh, in verse 25, that Israel said, "He's defying our armies." And yet David says, "No, no, he's not defying the army alone, but he's really defying the living God." David had a spiritual perceptivity into the situation, and he saw what was at stake. This was not simply a battle between one army and another but a mockery of the God that he worshipped. And David was appalled. Though Saul was afraid, though the people were afraid, David was angered. But what's interesting is, his brothers don't have a warm welcome to him. Verse 28, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. David, your heart's wicked. You just want to be entertained. You want to turn on CNN and watch the war, but you have no emotional uh, connection with it. You don't care what's happening. You're entertained by bloodshed. You have a wicked heart, brother. This is a dramatic accusation to the character of David. And David responds in verse 29, What have I done now? Was it not a word? Trying to understand what's going on here. Well, David is the eighth of eight children. I just pictured his older brothers always picking on him. What have I done now, brothers? But perhaps even more dramatic is what we see in chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. But when Samuel anoints David with oil, it says that his brothers were in the midst. The same brothers who were overlooked one by one. And you get a sense there's a bit of jealousy here. And there's also a bit of embarrassment. My younger brother is showing more courage than I am. And they ridiculed him. A word of David's confidence reached Saul in verse 31. And then in verse 32... David tells Saul, let no man's heart fail because of this, because of him, because of Goliath, your servant, referring to himself, I will go and fight this Philistine. This sounds ridiculous to Saul. Are you kidding me, David? Let me remind you of a couple things here. He lays them out before him in verse 33. He says, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. You're under 20 years old, David. And he has been a man of war since he was a youth. And you're going to go fight him? This nine foot six monster? This man with a bronze helmet and a javelin and sword? With his coat weighing 125 pounds and a shaft of a spear 15 pounds? You're going to fight him? Well, Saul gives him a list of two things, and David responds with his own list. He tells him in verse 34, Your servant used to keep the sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and then struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of Elohim Hayim, the living God. You think I'm too young? You think he's too strong? Well, I've killed, I've killed a lion. I've killed a bear. He'll be no different. Well, David, this is, this is pretty confident. Sounds a bit arrogant, actually. You think you're going to do this? Like, you're all that. But David doesn't leave it there. Because he's not saying he was all that. He says in verse 37 that his Lord was all that. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me essentially from the paw of this Philistine. David's not taking credit for this. He said, the Lord delivered me and he will deliver me again right now. The cowarding king is fully convinced. To many of our surprise, he says, go and Yahweh be with you. So David goes out. He puts on Saul's armor. It's not working for him. He's never wore it before. He's never tested it. He sheds it off. God, if you're going to use this under 20 year old, this teenager... To defeat this giant at least give him a helmet at least give him a coat a sword but we see God doing this how he strips us of the things we think we need to accomplish a task he calls us to and God says no what you need is me he did that with Gideon remember his army of 32,000 that became 10,000 that became 300 that had no sword David, though, unlike Gideon, is not afraid. He says, I got my slingshot. I'm going to go to the river. I'm going to pick up five smooth stones. It's just like God, right? He gives Gideon a torch and a trumpet. And he gives David a slingshot. And Goliath is offended by it. Look at verse 41. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. He said, you're not worth my time. David was but a youth. He was ruddy and handsome. What's ruddy? Ruddy means he had like a bronzeness about him, probably, or about his hair. This this is a little pretty boy. He's not a soldier. Just just his presence mocked Goliath. And Goliath says, no. And he tells him in verse 43, Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? Did you come to me with a stick? Are you going to toss it and have me fetch it? But Goliath has no mercy. He goes on to curse David by his gods. Notice that. In verse 43, he curses David by his gods. Wasn't this a a matter of one army versus another? No, there's a spiritual reality here. And when David said, this is the living God's army, Goliath had a God of his own. And he cursed David by it. And he goes on to tell David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. But David's not shaking in his boots. He says, you come to me with a sword, in verse 45, and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sebaot, the Lord of the armies of heaven. God Almighty, I come to you in his name. And you have defied him verse 46 the day the lord this day the lord will deliver you out of my hand into my hand and i will struck you down and cut off your head and i will give the dead bodies of the host of the philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth david was on it this dude had some courage where did it come from It wasn't in himself. He knew who his God was. And he had two purposes in mind. God's going to use me to kill you for two reasons. And he says it right there in the middle of verse 46. So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That this is the living God. And then he goes on, and that all this assembly, these cowards behind me essentially may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you He will give you into our hands See, Israel didn't get it Saul didn't get it He thought it was about brute strength But David said, this is no cage fight I'm not going to wrestle Goliath but God's going to use me to kill him brings to mind Psalm 20 that David himself Paul, uh, um, wrote out. He penned it with his own hand. Some trust in chariots, in verse 7. Some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They fall, to their, they fall down, they collapse, but we rise up and stand firm. Psalm 20, verses 7 and 8. Oh, there will be one who falls here in just a moment. And there will be one who stands firm. And the one who stands is the one who trusted in the Lord, not the one who trusted in the chariots and horses. And then David in verse 48, it says, When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. This is the third time David is said to have run. Or sorry, this is the second of three times. The first time he ran to meet his brothers. Now he runs to meet Goliath. And it's, it's set for us to be the very opposite of what Israel did. David ran to Goliath when they fled from Goliath. And David is unlike them. He's going to run at this man. And he's going to show him who the real God is. Verse 49. This is the David and Goliath story. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. I mean, seriously? His forehead? The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face on the ground. I mean, really? Nine foot six, bronze helmet, 125 pound coat, javelin, sword, shield bearer. And a stone hit him in the forehead? That's our God. That's our God delivering his people for the glory of his name. God is zealous for his name. And he will use whatever means to accomplish his purposes. And David did what he said he would do in verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and with a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed them. There was no sword in the hand of David. Verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him. And what? He cut off his head. This is not gore for the sake of entertainment. This is a reminder that God will not be mocked. And oh, that God would give us courage and a passion and a zeal for His name, just like David. Oh, that God would give us a David-sized conviction and courage for our God. See, God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. But these are the people He uses, the people who have a zeal for His name, a people who say, I'm concerned about my God and His name, and I won't let it be mocked. I will stand firm. I will have conviction about what I believe about Him. So God, Your name is too great. You are the living God, Elohim, Hayim. You are alive, God. I don't want you to be mocked. You are the Lord of hosts, Lord, Yahweh Sebaot, the God of all the armies of heaven. You won't be mocked. Your name, O oh God. We sing songs like that. Jesus, what a beautiful name. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Your name is a strong and mighty tower. Do you believe that, brother and sister? Is there a conviction about you? that That's my God. I don't want Him to be mocked. And I'm going to have courage to stand up. Our conviction deepens as our knowledge of our God deepens. If you remember last week, Gideon didn't know God. And it took him a long time before he had enough faith to believe God. David knew. He knew his God. He knew his God had delivered him. He knew his God was mighty. And David had a conviction and a courage that stemmed from his knowledge of the Lord of hosts. Do you have a knowledge of God? Knowledge of God comes through his word. Do you read his word? Do you meditate upon it? Do you soak in it? Do you chew upon it? Do you let God's word change you? Because as you know God's word, you know him. And as you know him, you will have courage to stand firm with conviction for the glory of his name. David also had a spiritual discerning mind here. Saul and Israel thought this was a battle between two armies. David knew what it was. This was a mockery of his God. And I pray that God would give us a discernment to understand our own the the own Goliaths, if you will, that want to mock our God in our days. And there are many out there, so many pulls at our hearts to make us idolatrous people in so many subtle ways. And when we bow our knee to other gods, it's a mockery of our God, the living God, the one who's alive. And how so many things do it, and if we're not careful, we get sucked right into it. How many times... Are we we more consumed with our sport team than we are with our God? How many times do we lift our hands and cheer? As as Rick Manabek pointed out at Vertical Worship several months ago, we lift our hands and cheer for our team, but, but we don't want to lift our hands for our God? We anticipate what happened the night before the game in the morning when we wake up. We want to see the score, but do we want to worship and be with our living God? We must guard our hearts against idols. How much time do we spend... With other things than we do with our God on Facebook, before television. God, you are the only God. Will you live with that conviction, beloved? In our society, there are many things that try to mock our God. And just even the bending of of marriage and the defining of marriage in our culture. It dishonors God, it mocks Him. Because He made marriage between one man and one woman. And it's to be marriage, not cohabitation, marriage. Because it's a covenant that God has established. And we need to have conviction about that. And a courage to say, no God, this, to, to, to tell our society, this is, this is God's picture in love. Brothers and sisters, we need to have conviction and be discerning to see the things in our society that mock our God. Words of worldly wisdom. You see it all over Twitter and Facebook. People have these great sayings, but they're not biblical. God does not help those who help themselves. We must be able to discern truth from error, lest our God be mocked. Perhaps one of the greatest things that dishonors and defies our God and the temptation for us is, is spiritual apathy. We've got it so well, we're so comfortable that we forget we forget about our God. Just this past week, I was reading about the revivals of the Great Awakening in the 1700s. How God rose a men like John and Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, who preached God's Word. And God stirred in people's heart. He brought them out of their apathy. To remind them, no, this is a living God. Not a God of routine. But a God who wants us to trust in Him. To say that He is enough. Will you do that? Will you have a David-sized kind of conviction about your God? A zeal for Him? Say, God, I want You. I don't want my apathy. It's okay if I haven't got the things I want. As long as I've got You, God. I want a zeal for Your name, O Lord. If God could use a young, ruddy, handsome, untested young man like David to defeat Goliath, Can He use you? All of Israel's army stood by too afraid to do anything. They had no courage. Even their king was afraid. Will you be too afraid? Will you be too afraid to stand up for your God, to live out your life to honor Him, to please Him with all you have? Or will you be like David? Will you be like David? who said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? Oh, that God would just stir our hearts, brothers and sisters. I was so blessed yesterday to hear of these baptisms, to hear the stories of five men and one woman, how God changed them. That's our God at work today, like He was working then. Just yesterday, I went to Dunkin' Donuts to finish up preparing for the, lesson at, for the sermon after the church picnic. And I just praise God for the opportunity he gave me to to, to talk to someone who was working there. She asked me, what are you studying? Homework? That's always a great intro for me. I'm working on a sermon for tomorrow. Do you go to church anywhere? And this, this small conversation became a long one. We talked for 45 minutes. I was able to share with her the hope of Christ. We praise God for opportunities like that. That's our God. Did random occurrences? No. Coincidences? No. He's in control. And He will use ordinary people like you and I to do extraordinary things if we would just be zealous for His name. That's our God. Our God who gives us hope. Our God who sent Jesus to die for us so that we put our faith in Him, we could be forgiven and have a new life. If you don't know this God, if you don't know the God of David, if you don't know the God of those five who got baptized yesterday, if you don't know the God that we talk about today, let today be that day. Let today be the day when, when you see how Jesus loves you, how He died for you to give you a new hope. You couldn't, you couldn't earn God's favor, but God and His love reached to you and says, here it is. Here's a gift of salvation if you just believe. Let today be that day for you. Let's stand together at this moment. Today we're not going to close with a song. We're going to close with a few moments of of just silence in our hearts. And I do want to invite prayer counselors. Would you come forward? Let's have two here and two here.